0: Hello, and welcome to Benyo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. What advice does an epidemiologist have on COVID today? On this episode, I speak to Megan Carl. Megan is a UK government epidemiologist, and we talk about the endgame for COVID as an endemic disease, vaccine waning, and long COVID. We also discuss the social determinants of health. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you. Be well. Hey, everyone. I'm really pleased to have Megan Carl. Megan is an epidemiologist at what used to be known as Public Health England, PHE, but is now called the UK Health Security Agency. She and her colleagues have been working flat out for two years, producing some of the world's best COVID data, Uh, You and everyone involved in this public service have our great thanks. So thank you, Megan, and welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast.
0: So first question, what COVID myths do you find the most annoying or maybe even any that you kind of find amusing? I guess the one annoying one I find is the myth on fertility and COVID vaccines, just because I kind of see that coming up a lot and obviously seems to be pushed, but Do you have anything which you find really annoying about COVID myths?
1: Uh, Yeah, there's a few. I think the most amusing one that I've seen so far um, has been um, that uh, the vaccine um, turns people gay. So that was a new one for me. I mean, you know, yeah, (laughs) what, how, how would that work? Like, what is the basis of that? And I think, I think what's interesting about, about the vaccine myths um, uh, is that it really highlights this idea of um, uh, correlation does not equal causality. So two events can happen in, um, in in time and space and a person that are linked, but it doesn't mean that one caused the other. And so I think we've obviously got a very hyper focus on, on the vaccines at the moment and what happens around the time of the vaccine. And, um, you know, people will attribute things to the vaccine that, that aren't real. Uh, the other one that I saw recently was that the vaccine gave them nits. That was another adverse event. So there's things, you know, that are uh, that are quite outrageous um, that are coming up. So I think, I, to me, maybe I find those more amusing. Um, the more, I would say, the more annoying one that I've seen, that I, I feel like I've been Battling for months and has spent so much of my time doing is the misinterpretation of um, the um, the vaccine um, and deaths data. So where people are now seeing that most of the people who die of COVID are vaccinated, and people interpreting that as vaccines not working, um, and so I. Um, and I think this is a message that we need to just keep reiterating until people understand it, but it is quite counterintuitive to tell people, actually, that means the vaccine program is working. And people don't really, you know it's very difficult to get that across. and it's it's just based on the the first assumption that no vaccine is one hundred percent effective. Um, there's 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 never been a vaccine. Um, that is 100% effective against hospitalization or death. So if you start from that point, then there will be sadly, unfortunately, a small fraction of people who who, um, go on to be hospitalized and die of COVID. Um, And because in this country and because globally, there's such a strong age um, risk gradient for that, that sadly, the people who we are vaccinating, who have really high uptake in vaccines. Um, Some of them, particularly in the older age groups, do go on to die. And it doesn't mean the vaccines aren't working because there's a whole lot of people whose infections were prevented. um, And then onward from that, even who got infected, who then their deaths were prevented because of the vaccine. So we're just seeing a very, very tip of the iceberg now compared to what we saw before. But it's just it, it's, it's a very difficult thing, I think, um, it, to communicate to people and get people to understand when they're just looking at, at basic numbers.
0: That's a great deep dive um, into it. So I'll come back to a lot of um, COVID stuff uh, in a moment. And I think that's right. This whole data literacy has been really revealing, particularly for those who you know, continued studying science or stats um, onwards, and those who sort of stopped at maybe 12, 13, 14, and didn't get in into this uh, type of um, type of thinking, that reading of that stats uh, has been quite counterintuitive, like you uh, like you said. Yeah. But before COVID, you were uh, quite an expert and continue to be an expert on HIV and other infectious diseases. So I was reading one of your recent papers on HIV, and I was struck by the results uh, that being gay or bi or being disabled in Romania led to much worse quality of life and obviously you looked at it in Romania but th- this whole idea um, it seems to go across companies in the world which is this intersectionality with so many what we might call the social determinants of health or socioeconomic and these other determinants. Uh, what do you think is a, a you observe is happening in here and, and how are you thinking about Environmental, economic, and some of these other determinants of health. When you're thinking about epidemiology, infectious disease, or, or even health in general.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When we're looking at things, um, so for example, so in, in people living with HIV, and we are talking about now a lifelong chronic infection. People can stay well with um, with HIV and li- live uh, li- normal um, lifespans. So, what is it um, that is perhaps determining worse outcomes in people with HIV, with, with, with um, excellent medication. And I think what we're seeing is specifically with HIV, it affects um, disproportionately affects marginalized populations. Um, and so you do have um, people from um, the LGBT background disproportionately um, um, affected, particularly gay and bisexual men. Um, and we have people, um, you know, people who inject drugs, migrants, sex workers. Um, and, and so you kind of have, um, you're dealing with this population that's marginalized in the first place. And then they have this additional uh, burden of stigma with HIV. Um, and so it can really have a have a huge out, uh, impact on on um, not only people's quality of life, but then onward to how how, you know, well they stay on their medication. And so I guess the issue that we saw, particularly in that analysis, is that being um, disabled, being gay or bisexual, um, that those are stigmatizing identities that in some countries are still a major, major barrier. Um, and these are we're talking about structural barriers, and this can also be a barrier to accessing health care and staying in healthcare. Um, so, I think, you know, I, I like to consider myself actually, particularly pre COVID, a social epidemiologist. So, thinking about these, as you say, structural determinants of health and how can we ensure that we can overcome those. Um, some of those are beyond public health, they're social issues that need to be addressed structurally within a country, within a culture. Um, but some of those can also be overcome by. The healthcare service. So for example, we don't see the same um, um, a correlation in the UK. We have um, the, the NHS, we have a really um, amazing health system, um, which is open access at the point of care. And so in many ways, um, that mitigates some of those additional barriers that people may experience being able to access healthcare freely in that way.
0: Yeah, I've always thought about that, that some, so much of what we might consider health, or particularly when you're thinking about population health, uh, the, the way of influencing that might be through an education or a social factor. But be, because it falls under that, there's kind of no, let's say, budget for it. I mean, take something away from, you know, pre-COVID times, the education around, say, just the normal flu vaccine, particularly if you're in an elderly or vulnerable population, you know, the uptake was not where you might have it. Now does the responsibility of that education rely on a health service or rely on sort of education and awareness to get to get people around? And because it sort of doesn't seem to fall in, in either, it kind of slightly falls by the wayside. And I was looking in the in the UK, so like you say, some of our, some of our things don't have that correlation. but what seems really striking, and, and this is also seemingly true of, of COVID, is the outcomes on uh, disabled people, whether that's actually learning disabled or other types of uh, disability, um, so do you think it's this, this same structural health issue going uh, through here and, and the social economic factors, and is there any thinking about um, helping this, because again the stats on it would suggest that in the UK something like about 20% of the population has some sort of um, disability, and it, it just seems to me kind of a, a real miss that we, we haven't got that closer to what we see in, in an average population.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the point on um, education and awareness is, is an excellent one because um, you can have the best interventions in the world, but if people are um, not aware of them or are not able to access them, or as we are seeing with um, the COVID vaccine, um, there's a lot of misinformation also circulating around that, um, then, you won't you won't see the impact that you could potentially have with that intervention, um, and so actually I think increasingly there's been a need to have a sort of um, um, um parts of the healthcare service or the public health service actually. Battle misinformation, um, where maybe we didn't have that need before, and I think probably the internet has has sort of helped that along because that that is such a route um, for spreading misinformation. But you are you are kind of battling against the tide in a way. But I think there needs to be. Um, uh, a public health response against specifically against misinformation and messaging against misinformation. I mean, we saw what happened with um, vaccines and autism um, about 20 years ago that has been completely debunked now, but even the damage that one single published paper by a fairly well-respected academic made a massive um, uh, dent in people's um, uh, trust in vaccines. And so I think I think there is a need for that within the in the health system. I think I would also caveat, though, there is there is a role for um, for you know uh, ministries of education and countries to actually do education for some of these wider structural issues as well. So I would say, for example, going back to the um, so sort of, um, quality of life among gay and bisexual men, I think if you don't have um, uh, sexual reproductive health and um, education about um, sexuality at schools about in an accepting inclusive way, um, I think that's where it starts. If you don't have that, then I think you're putting yourself at a disadvantage structurally in in the population, being able to understand and accept and have services that meet the needs of these people.
0: Um, Yeah, talking about a, a lack of information or misinformation, but particularly a lack, um i knew nothing about um atrx um until speaking with you and i didn't realize how rare it is so this is uh, what we kind of call these rare uh, genetic diseases um would you like to tell us a little bit about that and maybe i don't know how, how much um intersection you've had i guess with disability community or these communities but maybe um any sort of lessons or learnings that you've that you've had in your life because of this
1: yeah i mean that's a really um this is a very personal journey for me, actually. So, um, whilst I have worked for a long time, um, you know, particularly in HIV, dealing with marginalized populations, you know, I actually hadn't had much exposure to the disabled community or, or you know, health issues that affect them. But then, four years ago, my son was born um, with um, this very rare genetic syndrome called ATRX syndrome. Um, it's an X-linked. Um, um, uh, genetic mutation um, that mainly then affects boys. So um, women can carry, but, but boys are actually affected. Um, and uh, it leads to um, um, moderate to severe learning difficulties and also physical difficulties. So for example, my son who's four is nonverbal, he is. Um, he still wears nappies. He um, he's just learned to sit up on his own, but he can't crawl, can't walk. Um, he's learned to clap his hands, but so we he he makes progress, but very very slowly um, and at his own rate. And um, and I think so. So for me, I guess. Rather unexpectedly, in a way, I was—I joined this community, this of of um, disabled people and their carers—and had to learn really quickly about what it was to to be disabled. And not until I was actually part of it did I realize how hidden and invisible um, disabled communities actually are, um, still in this day and age. And um, and and the voice of disabled people, I think, um, and their carers, and is still not as mainstream, I think, as it should be. And so I need, I think for me, um, <laughs> where I've got a voice and I have quite a lot to say, I think I, I have felt that it has been really, um, yeah, it's been something that I want to add to what I what I do and what I stand for to be able to speak up for people who don't have a voice. And that includes my son. Um, so yeah, it, I think it, it's, it's, um, it is difficult, I think. It's a difficult um, place to be as a parent. I think, you know, there's there's a there's a process to go through. I think you have a child and you don't expect them to be, you know, have have an illness or a condition or being permanently disabled and so accepting that and seeing, I think coming to the other end where actually you see um, this person for themselves and who they are and they have their own thing to, to add to this world and they have their own joy and their own... Um, um, you know uh personality in their own um i don't know the genesis quoi the thing that they add and they bring to this world and it, and it's maybe different but it's just as valuable and their lives are just as valuable as everybody else's
0: yeah i i think for me uh that all echoes really true and i hadn't realized until sort of being immersed in it and really deeply thinking about it how much of the world. Is is not designed for a lot of other people. In fact, across so many things, and I, I feel sort of really ashamed that recently I hadn't realised how much of the world was designed for men, designed for able bodied designed for you know you can go X, Y, uh, and Z, or not even not even talking about physical design, but just how our social and cultural constructs and that actually if we design things for for well for the everyone or for some people who have these other needs, it actually doesn't bother uh the majority um you know everyone can use an accessible bathroom for instance um which but you know we hadn't we didn't really didn't really think about that and that that has really sort of changed my world and then that second element that you said that these are you know really um without wanting to sound kind of Uh, more kish about it but really worthy like they're they're just as human as everyone else and therefore if you think that being human is kind of special or about about being humanity then there is then there is a lot to that but that's on the challenging side as well as the joys right everyone has rainy days and and sunny days and that's just true of of everyone
1: absolutely I think you that what you just picked up on is interesting as well because I think so I think seeing People And particularly, so I'm thinking about my son who has a learning difficulty and is nonverbal. So he has certain ways that he can communicate. And I think um, a lot of people say, oh, he's so smiley. Isn't he happy all the time? Because he is. He's a happy, he's a smiley kid. He'll give you a smile if you smile at him. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's overall quite cheerful. But then you think, well, actually he's allowed to have bad days as well. He's allowed to have down days. He's, you know, he has his own personal feelings. And I think, um, um, oh, I can't, I can't remember the term for it now. What's it called? Like um, oh sorry, if this means to be cut. What's the word? The um not a disability porn. What do they call this? It's sort of where people get um uh you put you put a, a video on the internet and everybody goes, Oh, that's amazing. But it really actually diminishes yeah. P- Do you know pity, I'm kind about? of like
0: pity porn I think I've heard it called but
1: yeah so there's this thing yeah where called yeah um pity porn or whatever it is and I think that it, it it makes people very two-dimensional I think um but actually people are even with disabilities are three-dimensional they're humans they're not um here to be cured or fixed necessarily they should be accepted just the same as everybody else and I think I'm I'm happy that I feel like we live in a time right now where that is actually being viewed. And I think, you know, even I'm old enough to remember 20, 25 years ago when I was at school, um, there was no talk about um, neurodiversity at all. I mean, that wasn't even really a thing. Um, there was, you know, very little, um, you know, understanding about um, um, disabilities in schools and, and, and awareness about these things. So I think. Now we are, we are, as you say, being more inclusive. And I think there is a need, uh, there is a drive to be more inclusive and make sure places are accessible and everybody's at a level playing field. Because if you don't do that, I think we don't realize how actually inaccessible the world can be for people um, without those small adjustments, really.
0: Yeah. And it's unnecessary. And I think that picked up on something that we, it's been slow, but in my more hopeful moments they just notice we've had in some ways enormous social progress it's in some ways it's a little bit like life expectancy you know slow and steady we can do so much more because we see so many areas where it seems like well this is just an obvious um place that we could do better but if you look at the overall stats you know virtually everywhere i know there's some populations now which are sort of suffering over the last two or three years but generally when you think about it globally or within countries Every year we're, we're, we're living a little bit longer. Things like death and childbirth are still going down. Um, I remember speaking to a lot of my friends and allies 20, 30 years ago, so it's likely showing my age, but that you know they thought they would never see gay marriage in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And now in a lot of places it, it's happening and it seems to be going in the thing. So that is, you can argue it's slow and we have to do so much more and this is all completely correct, but you've also got to celebrate that we've had had some wins. So, Absolutely. I was thinking you know you've come from Michigan to London I, I, do you miss anything about the U.S. and maybe is there anything that the U.K. can learn from the U.S. and or are reflections about what the U.S. can learn uh, from the U.K.
1: oh that I mean so much but well I, I moved over here um, a long time ago now though so I moved over here um, in 2005 which is coming up on 16 years ago so um, in a way, I was never quite an adult. I didn't uh, in in the U.S. Um, and I think also over that time period, a lot has changed. Um, so I get the exposure of what's going on there from my friends online, but also from the odd visit here and there. Um, and I mean, unfortunately, I do think that um, the U.S. has become quite divisive. Has become hyper politicized um, and um i think yeah it, it's it's a tricky environment over there at the moment and you could argue in the uk there there is that to an extent as well um it's just not quite as polarized i think um as as it is over there but yeah i um i i think one of the things that i i think the us um has an advantage is is in terms of sort of resources so um, coming back to my work, so they have the Center for Disease Control, and that is just incredibly resourced. I mean, they have um, have so many different amazing programs that they're able to do in terms of public health um, there that that we didn't, at least before COVID, quite have, have the same kind of emphasis and the same kind of um, backing to be able to do. I'm hoping, I think, with COVID and then this really new enhanced um, profile of public health that actually um, we will be better resourced to be able to undertake these these type of projects. And one of the things that, for example, just stands out to me is is genomics, the genomic sequencing program. And I think some of those things like genomic sequencing, understanding variants and monitoring and tracking those has come to the fore of how useful that is. And I think two, three years ago, it made us seem very very niche and very um, um you know, laboratory science, um, but I think we can see how how we can use that and the utility of that. So I think um, from the resource side of things, I think what the U.S. Uh, well, what the what the U.K. benefit has that the U.S. doesn't again in terms of public health is we have the NHS and what that again gives us. And I'm a huge fan. I won't <laughs> apologize. I will always talk about how amazing the NHS is. Um, that It also gives us sort of quite large scale administrative databases that we can um, use to um, analyze data at a population level. Um, So some of the, again, with COVID, the analysis you've been doing, looking at linking um, positive cases um, to their hospital records, to their vaccine status, is something that's not possible in the States all of those databases sit completely separately in the fragmented healthcare systems, of private healthcare organizations. Um, there's no national monitoring that's possible. So um, from that perspective, if I was doing the, my job over in the States, I think it would be really, really hard and also very, very frustrating at times to not be able to, with such a well-resourced pu- um, uh, public health system, to not still not be able to do that kind of um, analysis, so that's where the U.S. is actually leaning very much on data from the U.K. and Israel and some of the European countries um, and, and East Asian countries to to actually inform um, their policy on vaccines.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the U.K. COVID data. To, to my view, seems world uh, leading. And to your point, I think the US lacks much of this granularity, which I'm really surprised the CDC hadn't managed to get something together. But like you say, this is structural um, issues. And I, I don't also know whether a lot of people know, but the NHS, because of our very unique NHS number, gives us a, a data set and also the numbers, because Israel is great, but it's a smaller kind of number set, really, which makes it kind of e- extraordinary. I was. Uh, I don't know whether you might want to touch upon what's really great about the uk data and and then maybe sort of hopes for the future. Um, I put in my two cents, which is that um I think for a lot of this I, you know it, it it's difficult for decision makers particularly in politics because you've always got a kind of a now need. you know, if I spend more money on a diabetic nurse now, I'm going to get immediate diabetic outcomes. Whereas things like in infectious diseases, particularly that, it's sort of in a decision maker's mind, a kind of insurance type thing. Like, well, I could stockpile 20 million masks, but if I don't need them for 10 years, well, that like particularly in my political cycle might seem a little bit of, of a waste, right? From, I could see that from their point of view. I'm not gonna get any credit. It'll be the person who's on another watch you can then benefit from those masks. So some sort of institutional framework or organization which can, which can pivot and react very quickly and gather that kind of almost just in time in a way that uh, ph and have done over this time but being prepared so that you don't have to necessarily have huge stockpiles, but you can react very quickly because also we don't know in what form it would take. Maybe whatever form it will happen that you know, masks aren't going to be your thing. It's going to be some other thing, whatever it is that, that you want. But I guess circling back is maybe a couple of points about what's really great about the UK data, and what you'd what you'd hope, um, you know, what we could do in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the um, so as you know, as you mentioned, um, PHE has um, has has sort of changed, and um, parts have been um, um, split up. And the pit that I work on, looking at infectious disease, is part of the UK Health Security Agency. Now, um, so there's two points I think to make. One is that that health uh, security agency. One of the key um, uh, aims of that um, is to build have a, a build in a workforce that is um, uh, very reflexive and um, able to respond to emergencies and um, and I mean I would say data needs, but you know this is sort sort of to inform policy very, very quickly. Um, and again, that's a capacity that's built up really well um, over the course of COVID. And that within this health security agency is aiming to retain that ability. So as you say, if there's quite a rapid um, um, need for uh, modeling uh, data or, um, or or just sort of surveillance data or outcomes data on, on anything that perhaps comes up, that the health security agency then is able and, and resource and staff to be able to provide that. I think the flip side of that, as you say, so there's the the immediate need, um, which I think in the UK we have, as we've got these amazing data sets, we actually, it's more of a operational challenge in terms of getting data linkage and permissions to be able to bring uh, all these data sets that we have together because um, they're owned by different organizations and um i mean there there actually is you know quite important um, data protection that we have to follow and patient safety and patient um, uh, privacy laws that we do have to follow so there you know that can take two or three years again pre covid to get to Two databases to link up and talk to one another. So, I think um, the health security agency is meant to have a framework where we're able to like make sure that all everything's talking to each other, so we can do these analyses rapidly um, in in like a secure and safe environment. So that's that. The other point yeah. that, that two or seems... three
0: years that just kind of blows oh. that does blows my mind, and I, and I kind of think this because there is I think sort of rightly so the public's kind of worried about uh, their data, but on the other hand. We, we essentially we give it to Twitter, Facebook, Google, like not only for free, like the like the opposite, and um, we don't give it to sort of health authorities who could really, you know, save people's lives with it, and it really it really frustrates me that I think you know. And you know, but essentially, because I think we can trust the NHS, and I think we can trust the NHS with our data, and we would we would do so much better for it. And because you've got to trust NHS more than Facebook, and you and you you've given it to Facebook, Google, Amazon, and and all of that. And what what is that letting them do? Sell you more, um, you know, cat memes if that's what you were into, <laughs> right? As opposed yeah. to as opposed <laughs> to directing your population health, they're like giving you ideas about where you are. So that. That frustrates me and this is the kind of the public imaging education bit because i think if people really really knew i'm hoping that they they would be more like oh no you know what this is a really good thing i i would i mean i give my credit card and all of that uh, all of that data so that because i really see that there could be a huge benefit with that and particularly in the uk so it's so unique anyway i i i stopped yeah. you there from your second point but just that's so, no that's okay years, I... I thought it could be more but i, I thought it could be a, a challenge But two or three years of multi-agency just seems like that. And I think, you know, we've got very high data protections. And I was also going to ask a little bit about day in the life and things like that. You know, we've got freedom of information and and all of this as well. And if you compare it to what you have in other things, it's just, uh, you know, again, we've just put the emphasis, in my view, slightly wrongly about how we could could do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I say, some of these private organic, you know, companies like Google and Facebook have just trillions of data points that they get to fit in. Uh, But I mean, is, I don't want to undermine is actually a very, very important step that we do carefully consider, um, you know, data release and who gets access to data. And that that is very, very carefully managed, I think, because there is an element of public trust. And we need to make sure that people um, can opt out if they need to. And we have, in this in this country very few who actually take that option that is possible um but i would say that um but that, our safeguards that,
0: are really strong that's the yes I kind of
1: and they need to be there but um there is also a bureaucratic element <laughs> there that just take it's paperwork and it's red tape and it takes a long time and it actually it's it's almost just the human resource required to get something through to be able to, you know, like I say, link two databases across or um or get, you know, get a memorandum of understanding that you can pull some data, an extract of data, and link that up. Um, and some of these databases are very, very sensitive, of course. And so um, yeah, so it that 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 is something that I think could be improved massively. I hope it will be now. Um, and it actually has even over the past 10 years, um, you know, a lot of the cross working has been very good. So that's positive. <laughs> yeah.
0: Great. OK, so we're going to go more into the epidemiology section and all of the COVID stuff. But I thought uh, maybe it'd be good to have an understanding of, of what do you think people most under- misunderstand about being an epidemiologist? Or maybe you can get a glimpse into sort of a, a day in the life of, of Megan. I mean, I got an impression, you know, there's spreadsheets, maybe there's paperwork like Freedom of Information, they're speaking, you know, you do this kind of comms role, Um but I guess a few years ago people didn't like, oh what 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 do they do? Are they tracking stats and things? Um, so I don't know maybe what's misunderstood about what you can or can't do, or a glimpse into your kind of day in the life.
1: Well, I mean, for me, when I used to tell people that I was an epidemiologist, they thought I studied skin. <laughs> um, okay or or armadillos? I mean, just, there was almost zero recognition of of what that term was. Um, and so, wow, that has really changed over the past two years. Um, now, pretty much everybody knows what an epidemiologist is. Um, but breaking it down to its basic Basic points: It's it's people who study a disease in a population, and I think what maybe people don't realize is there's lots of different types of epidemiologists. So there are infectious disease epidemiologists, which is where I work, but there's also um, there's also, as I said, there's social epidemiologists that look at the impact of social um, uh, factors and social determinants of health um, um, on on outcomes of people. There are psychological epidemiologists that look at, say, um, they might look at um, anxiety and depression and mental health issues. They might look at things like suicide and look at the demographics around that. Um, there's um, people who will look at, you know, substance abuse, alcohol and smoking. So there's, I mean, the, the actual profession of epidemiology is actually really, really broad and, and covers almost any area that might affect health. Um, so I think that's one thing that that I think is important to highlight these other um, roles in epidemiology um, that are being done that aren't just looking at an infection. Um, but yeah, I think the actual day-to-day um, it is quite, I mean, I, I'm a government epidemiologist and there's epidemiologists who work in lots of different sectors, including academic and the commercial sector and things like that. Um, in the government sector, um, we're asked to um, do quite a lot uh, around surveillance. So the routine monitoring of particular infections, um, understanding yet yeah, the demographics, the factors risk factors for say acquiring these infections, um, looking at the outcomes of, of people with the infections. Also looking at prevention measures um, and evaluating those. Um, and so for HIV that could be looking at. Um, uh, Pre exposure prophylaxis that could be looking at condom use. Um, it could, for um, you know, flu and COVID, that's looking at vaccines, so these preventative measures. So it's quite broad in, in how we're understanding how a disease impacts the population. Um, and so we, we do these analyses to inform policy. We do some of them as um, more in depth analyses to um, uh, better understand factors associated with these diseases. Um, we do a lot of interworking with other government agencies, um, depending on what the topic is. To engage with COVID, in particular, we're doing a lot of um, working together with policymakers and ministers, um, because a lot of you know, so many of these decisions are very high profile at the moment and being made at the top levels of government, um, and are changing so rapidly. Um, and then, yeah, we do we do also, you know, day to day response to freedom of information requests and parliamentary questions and things like that um and uh, just to say all those freedom of, of information requests that come in they get dealt with just in as in the same level of scrutiny that would be if if um you know a member of parliament asked it so we have a certain statutory duty to respond to to all of those with the best information that we can so um yeah so it's it's quite it's quite a mixed bag lots of different things that we deal with um on a day-to-day basis oh also there's quite a lot at the moment dealing with sort of individual management of certain settings or certain outbreaks and things like that. So there's actually quite a lot of instant meetings where we deal with um, and, and look at the epidemiology of what's happening um, In the local at area local level. Yeah, exactly. On
0: a, lo- small, on a particular population. Yeah. yeah. Wow, keeps you really, really busy. Um, and so I guess we've had a lot of these kind of armchair epidemiologists that we said. And um, actually, it's interesting, some with a computational mass background have shown quite good sort of short to medium term accuracy with, with some of their modelings. actually using kind of Uh, the stats and the maths. Um, Others have actually been kind of quite off base. And I think this is interesting for how we started off this uh, conversation with some of the myths, because I'm always very interested about whether we think we have a biological or or scientific mechanism behind something. You know, I was taught, you know, start with a theory and then check the data rather than just mine through the data and, Mm. and, and come up with things. And then on the other hand, some scientists have been quite protective of what's perceived to be their own sort of relatively narrow domains. Um, a lot of social scientists or say uh, uh, economic thinkers and things have, have stressed a lot of um, work around kind of this thinking around so-called expected value and interdisciplinary thinking. Um, and it's all, it's all comes out to be sometimes quite argumentative, well, particularly on social media. I was wondering how best should we think of this and is there any learnings kind of you've survived on, on all of this area?
1: I mean, I, I think I I'd like to start with the positive that's come out of all this. And I think one of the most amazing things of having um um so much resource and energy on a single infection and a single um disease has meant that um we've been able to draw resources from probably the most unlikely areas that you may not expect so like you say we've got people who normally work as actuaries people who work in um, in in um, forecast modeling for insurance companies people who um, work in. um, I mean just so many different sectors actually all looking at the same um, problem and. And even when it comes even down to people who are very good at like data visualization and they're getting in the mix. And it's actually, you know, me, maybe me and my small team at PHE who work on, some of the epi may not have the resources to be able to do all that. So I actually love going on Twitter and other places and seeing what other people can do with the data um, when it's done in a robust and sort of, uh, you know, an independent sort of way, just really is as a, as a research question they're trying to answer. Um, and I've, I've just been a really big fan of open access to data and allowing, um, you know, putting APIs, for example, on the dashboard and letting people draw down the data and, and play with it and and do these amazing analyses. I mean, I'll be quite honest. Some of the analyses that show up on on Twitter and some of uh, you know in the broadsheets. Um, make it into some of our incident management meetings where we're using because it just it helps us to visualize and it helps to communicate that to the to the stakeholders that we're talking to. So I think that's been amazing. I think I'll really miss that when things die down and people go back to their day jobs and then we are we we um we're not able to like draw from that resource. Um So I think that's amazing. I think, like, as you say, then the converse is that there are people also out there who maybe don't have such a robust approach to the data. They may have an agenda or something. Um, You know, confirmation bias is a huge thing, I think, and people have something that they want to say. People can usually change and and manipulate the data to make it say whatever they want it to say. Um, And that's the unfortunate uh, side of things is that... um, there's no accountability and there's no, um, you know, responsibility for people saying, you know, making, drawing any manner of conclusions from the data. And sometimes it does want to make me want to tear my hair out thinking, oh my God, that's not what it says. Um, But some, some large, um, you know, somebody with a a high profile will say it and then it becomes the gospel. So again, that kind of comes back to what I said before about constantly having to counter misinformation out there, and it's a difficult thing. I mean, it's a difficult thing, even UKHSA to do that. We're a government body, and so sometimes there's already kind of a base skepticism about what we're saying if we're trying to manipulate. But that's, I mean, in this country, that's not the case of, of what we're trying to do. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a mixed bag.
0: Yeah, that's that's fair. That's sort of my impressions too. Oh, one bit I am interested in. I guess this is you know we can follow the science to a certain degree but there 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 have to be social political decisions made by politicians at some point. Um, I guess there's been a lot of talk by some areas of uh, i guess economists about how what they would call expected value hasn 't necessarily been taken into account so so one example would be uh, say speed in some countries so it doesn't even ne- necessarily be the u k thing but for instance speed to approval of a vaccine, or you could talk about it, boosters and things, just the delay in in decisions. So where you're talking even a few weeks or a few months, when they when they translate that into statistical lives, they're going, well, this statistical life uh, would be really, really saved. And what makes me perhaps a little bit uh, unhopeful is when you broaden that out to sort of a, a global stage. And again, so you're talking about global stats, but you could see for X billion investments. So quite large numbers, like a hundred billion, but but very doable for nation states to do this. You would get potentially trillions in uh, reward because we'd invest in, say, vaccine infrastructure in Africa, and you'll you'll suddenly those life saves are there. And that there seems to be no kind of what they would call an expected value calculation on that, that would just quicker and spend more money. And from their point of view, it's it's sort of win-win because you you're saving lives, which is also helping everything on the economic front and that sort of thinking I think has felt very uh, frust- frustrated by and some of it I think you've mentioned there's a kind of a bureaucratic hurdle obviously there's different stakeholders with, with different things um but I've I've still been surprised that there couldn't have been and, and there still isn't quicker expected value. I mean t- thinking about it on the global stage you know if I was the benign dictator I could definitely siphon off seemingly 200 billion and get trillions of uh, trillions of outcomes, which would be a great reward uh, seemingly on, on that. But we're, obviously, we're not um, we're not set up to do that. Do, do you think we haven't paid or, uh, you know, in general, we're not thinking enough about it, expected value? And is there anything we can do on that? Or do you think it's more of a, I don't know, if there's any other things we need to sort of consider in that type of thinking?
1: Well, I mean, I think, I think it's a really uh, interesting area. Uh, of um, of thought um, at the moment in terms of um, where's best to invest, I think. I think a lot of countries, um, particularly developed countries, are in the thinking that let's sort our patch out first and then we'll be better able to help um, others who are, um, you know, have less resources, basically. Um, However, the risk there, as you say, is that the time that you spent sorting your own path, sort of putting your mask on first, like on the airplane is kind of that sort of analogy. So put your mask on first before you can help others, is that you lose time um, and you lose lives and you lose um, sometimes also momentum um, in, in, particularly around vax like we'll say vaccine rollout is kind of uh, one of the key areas for this Um, and I think I mean me my my own personal worry is that what may happen is that all the you know high income countries um, sort themselves out sort of um, so to speak and then uh, okay COVID is over for us it's endemic and we're fine now and then it comes out of the news media. It starts dropping down the agenda and down the priority list. And perhaps um, there's just less momentum and less um, less sort of drive to continue pouring resources into helping other countries, um, you know, with their vaccine um, supply and rollout. And I think the problem with that is that, especially with Covid,, um, you know, Yes, my belief, you know, it will become endemic everywhere, but um, we have variants that are that are constantly posing um, problems and could in future pose problems with vaccine efficacy and um, in severity of, of outcomes. And I think sort of none of the countries are going to be fine until all of the countries in the world are fine unless we close borders everywhere, which is never going to happen. So there's going to constantly be this movement. We don't live in a vacuum and we don't live like in isolation from one another. So I think there is a, an incentive even for the UK to make sure the other countries are, are in order um, in order to be able to move on from, from where we are right now. But I, I can, I mean, I, I to an extent, I also have sympathy with policymakers because you know we can produce the data from within um, um, PHE from UKHSA um, and and give really compelling evidence for why a policy is needed, but it's then the healthcare care or the um sorry the government um, minister's job to actually consider all the other pieces that will be affected by that, which include um, economic impacts and and others. So. Um, I I don't envy that position because there's a lot of different factors that need to be weighed up when making these decisions. And that's, that's what politicians are for. That's their job is to weigh all these cost benefits up and make a decision on the balance of that. Um, But I think, yeah, it it can, it can feel kind of frustrating if you feel something should be happening in your patch and it's not. Um,
0: Yeah, I saw that particularly um, with uh, say the the regular the regulators, which I, again I have quite a lot of sympathy because it's quite complicated, and I can see individual nation states, uh, you know, needing to take a view. And different populations are, are different. Actually, we can get onto this that you know countries' data by because of their populations, the way they do their data, often really not uh, comparable. Which is probably one of the other things which kind of annoys me when people look at their data. It's like, well, do you actually know when you when you go and look into it, uh. it's just a completely different number. But I did feel with with everything like you know particularly with europe versus uk or even some extent japan and then the us um, you know you're talking about clever scientists with other clever scientists there there should have been better i guess regulatory arbitrage where if a, if a decent amount of consensus scientists are saying look this is this is safe and effective for us it's kind of going to be obviously safe and effective for most of these other populations given what we know and those months delays where we're very Uh, costly and I know there's all these other stakeholders in the the round and there's a kind of this um, behavioral agency problem because you take the blame for when things go wrong but you hardly get the credit you know if you Mm -hmm. if you've done something three months quicker you, you no one goes oh the expected value of that was millions of life saves you know well done you it's like oh my god you had a one in a billion side effect which was which was dramatic oh that's that so I can see that but it was really frustrating and in fact you can see this now that it's it's just you know it, it seems obvious if this bunch of scientists are, are saying it, and that's where consensus is. It's got to be true in, in these other countries, but if that's, that's, that's where it is. So I mean when Adam really Lee not really talking about anything official or official policy, but I was wondering when, when you're speaking to friends or family and they ask you advice about uh, COVID, um, what do you, what do you say to them and maybe people who are, who are being a little bit um, vaccine hesitant? Um, Maybe because they've been an underserved community or they've had some um, misinformation. Do you have any overall advice about uh, COVID or uh, vaccine hesitant people?
1: I mean, I think what I have been, the way I've been talking about COVID has definitely evolved over the time that it's been around, I think, you know, actually at the very start, I, I was thinking, oh, it's it's just like you know them talking about early early first couple months. Thought, oh, it's just maybe it's another like a flu or like a bird flu, um, and then I think as we get more information about what what coronavirus was and um, and how it was affecting populations, um, and how severe it could be in terms of um, outcomes, but also sort of long COVID and things like this. Um, yeah, I think then my 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 advice would adapt. And I think now we're in a vaccine era um, and I would, I think I could maybe call it post-vaccine. Are we there? I think nearly, um, especially for adults. I think, you know, it's adapted again. So my current advice for people is that, um, you know I believe that, that coronavirus will become an endemic, globally endemic infection I think that a great deal of the poor outcomes we're seeing down to COVID is because people are immune naive, have been immune naive, and have had lacked any kind of immune response, and so it's a it's a completely foreign um, pathogen, and then the body reacts. I think in the presence of some immunity, whether ideally through vaccines, but you know even if you've if you've been infected before, that gives you immunity, then your chance of having poor outcomes is is just much, much, many, many times lower. Um, although, as I said before, it, it can happen, but I think then again, we're looking at particular risk groups, and it's not really something you would see um, in a younger and um, a healthy um, otherwise healthy population. So to that end, I think there will come a time when we have to live with it, um, and we have to get on, and we can't continue having a myopic focus on a single um, disease for for much longer, because other um, other diseases, other conditions, other health problems, other economic problems, are also in the mix and need attention as well. So, my current advice I I, I say if you can avoid crowded indoor areas um, and wear a mask indoors, I think that's that's your best um, you know your safest way of doing that. It's it's a it's a um, intervention that takes almost very little effort you know a mask basically and could could be um uh, quite impactful i think um particularly if you are infected and you don't know it um uh but other than that i think um you know it, it, i think we're we're not going to see the end of coronavirus i don't think in our lifetime and i think probably a lot of people are going to be infected More than one time, but going forward, I think the severity will will um, reduce. There's also those are so much we don't know yet, and I think we still need to continue. Maybe in the background, maybe not at the forefront of the you know um, headline news every day, but we need to continue monitoring things like um, vaccine waning and long term vaccine effectiveness. We need to continue monitoring things like variants and how those impact. on, on, uh, you know, changes to the virus. Um, And we need to continue pushing um, um, vaccination in these hesitant populations to ensure everybody is as protected as they can. So I think there's still a lot of work in the background. To your second question, though, about vaccine hesitancy, I mean, I think, to me, I, I have I have had um, people in my life who've come to me for advice on the vaccines and whether it's, um, like you say, some particularly um, marginalized populations who have very little trust in the health system. It could also be pregnant women who are just concerned about the impact on their unborn child. Um, and, and it could just be people who've, who've had misinformation. I think for me, kindness and patience is always the best way forward. I think coming Combating people, making them feel silly, and making them feel um, as if they're a mug for believing some not understanding, or um, is is the absolute worst tactic to take. I think giving people time um, and patience, um, and the correct information, signposting them, and also, maybe not expecting people to change overnight or change their minds in a heartbeat, because people have a lot of really deeply felt beliefs and a lot of deeply felt fears, um, and those don't just change overnight. So, um, yeah, I think I think it, I think it's so important not to see vaccine hesitant people as some sort of enemy or some people who are who are doing something to the rest of us to harm us. I think these are people who, most of whom, many of whom have genuine fears that really need to be worked through and need to be assuaged before they'll feel comfortable. Um, so that's, yeah, I think that's my, my opinion. I think also countering the just general population of, uh, misinformation is just going to be so important because unfortunately there seems to be a bit of a wave at the moment of anti sort or protests and, um, and, movement that's gaining a bit of ground at the moment, which I think is really unfortunate. And for that, I think we need higher level, government level messaging that needs to come in to combat that.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, I'm just gonna pick up on two or three things you said there. I, I don't know if we will be able to cover them briefly, but one was, a, I guess, the endemic state. Second was on sort of long COVID and the third one was on vaccine waning. Um, I guess on the endemic state, I was listening to a pharmaceutical company recently And they were essentially saying that the end game for COVID in post-vaccine sort of world, which some uh, nation states are probably in, was living it with sort of an endemic disease, sort of normalizing, like low friction interventions, crowded place with masks, why not? Doesn't really cost you anything. But for everything else, if you're double-vaxxed or some people might need boosters and things like this, um, that that you should really be thinking of beginning to be a sort of a more normalized state living with endemic disease. And that while mutations were also very likely, they also said that to your point, if we keep up with the surveillance and everything, that the technology should be able to match whatever we see on the mutation side. So obviously there's kind of tail risk either way, but your your base case would that be that you would um, cope with it. And then that becomes like uh, another um, endemic disease. I mean, it's not quite like flu, but that's what most people would kind of uh, think about. Would that be uh, would that be a sort of reasonable base case in thinking about the end state here?
1: Yeah, I think, and I think just something to clarify. I think I don't think anybody thinks that the 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 um, disease course of uh, COVID is like flu. It's more what we're saying is how we manage it yeah. is will yes. be like flu. I think so. So thinking about it from that perspective, where yes, we have um, a potentially deadly virus circulating and in, in this population is actually quite scary. But we've had that with flu for hundreds of years, um, and um, and for several decades we've had flu vaccines. So I think we um, we manage that through surveillance, like you say. So we constantly monitor um, the number of infections, um, and particularly in particular populations, like in hospitals and in young people, for example. And we um, also monitor, and we will. We will be monitoring much more closely variants, so that we can, uh, yeah, adjust um, and tweak um, the formulations of vaccines if and when that becomes necessary. So, if we're able to do that, um, then um, you know what we're also able to do is. Um, interventions like preventive interventions like the like the vaccination campaigns that's an intervention um that's a huge huge intervention for us um and again we use that for flu every winter we come through with a vaccination campaign and we target vaccines at the people who are at most at risk normally it's very young children very elderly healthcare workers for example carers um so i would always had my vaccine and so um it yeah, so we have these these vaccination campaigns, that's a huge intervention. And then some of the non-pharmaceutical inventions, interventions as well, if those stay up to a certain extent, will make all the more benefit in terms of preventing the spread um, and, and preventing impact of, of illness, basically, that we might see. So this is where I think all this background um, work needs to continue to be able to see, OK, well, will coronavirus Become more of a seasonal virus. At the moment, we're not seeing that at all, but it could become that way once it becomes more endemic. So we need to continue to watch the patterns, looking at like waning, because um, again, we don't have a really gr- good concept of what that means in an endemic state. Um, what it would normally mean is that um, you know a certain amount of so you, a certain amount of people immunities um, are are sort of um, um, reducing and people are coming into the susceptible pool at a certain rate, then people are being vaccinated coming out of the susceptible pool at a certain rate. And where that sort of levels off in terms of the numbers of infections um, that we're seeing is a big question mark, we don't really know. Um, And then I think the third point is really around, um, is around variants. And I think it's really important to note actually that when you have a um, a new virus, actually, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, after a few years, it tends to kind of settle down. So you don't really have um, massive divergence in terms, of, um, in terms of variants and different strains coming out um, after a certain point. So I think the hope is that the same will hold for coronavirus. We're seeing alpha strain, delta strain, lots of um, unique strains coming out. We're hoping that actually after a few years, that will settle down in and of itself and you might see different strains emerging slightly like you do with flu but not to the same level where it could completely evade a vaccine for example Um, we're very very fortunate with our vaccines we have incredible vaccines that we think so far look like it would take an awful lot of mutations to completely evade a vaccine and again that's different to the flu So it would not take a big change in a flu um, virus to evade a vaccine. Uh, Coronavirus looks to be behaving quite differently. So we think we're quite hopeful, we're optimistic, but there's a ton of things we need to keep monitoring for probably another, uh, very closely for at least another couple of years, I think.
0: Yeah, I think from what I can see as well, that's one of the differences within flu. Like flu, often you'd have to adjust. This one looks like we won't have to. And then even even if it does come with our surveillance, it's very likely we'd be able to adjust on time. Um, I guess one, a lot of people are thinking about long COVID as well and I guess a a lot of it uh, obviously it's impacting adults but a a lot of the queries around uh, the risk in children. um, It seems my reading of the data, uh, particularly I put some weight on this ONS study, is suggesting that the risk is is pretty low, there's difficulties because it's not very well defined, you know, we know what is it and and everything uh, and that but it does look, given that a lot of children are unvaccinated, so that's why it's sort of come up as a thing. Do you have a view on, on what you're seeing in the data and whether um, it is true to say that long COVID risk in, in children is, is lower? And then I guess we can also speak to, you know, it is obviously an issue in uh, adults and we see post-viral syndromes quite often in type of infectious diseases. So it's not surprising. And actually that's been an understudied area in general for all sorts of post-viral infectious diseases of which we're hoping, um, I guess we're going to see more research in that. But yeah, any views on long COVID risk in in children and any thoughts on long COVID in general?
1: Well, I think like you say, the... the post-viral syndrome, which we do see in other um, infections, is actually has been really poorly understood, like you say. So I think one thing that's really good is that um, there's a lot of effort and a lot of um, resource now going into trying to characterize this and understand what's happening when these things happen. Um, Again, not just for COVID, but other infections. So I'm hoping actually that will help us to understand some of these... Um, disease areas that actually previously have been very kind of fuzzily and ill-defined and have been very difficult to diagnose and don't really have specific diagnostic criteria. And then that means it's difficult to, to treat them and understand how to treat them. So I think, again, that's just a positive, I think, is that with, with this um, awareness of long COVID and emphasis um, and, and the numbers who are affected due to the sheer scale, I think that hopefully we will come soon, sooner rather than later to some much better understanding of what's causing that at the moment, it looks like a multi-system sort of inflammatory reaction that's happening, um, and that that's causing a long-term effect. Um, I have to say, long COVID isn't my area that I I, I um, work on very uh, in depth, but the evidence that I've seen so far haven't ind- has indicated that um, long COVID is 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 less um, quite less common in children compared to adults. Um, and I think a quite a rational explanation for that is children are much more likely to either be asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms. And I think there probably is some correlation with um, how severe your illness is um, and how bad it hits you and, and effect you know, causes an immune response to then how likely you are to to, to experience a long COVID reaction. So I think that's good news because I think that children are are largely protected from from this additional sequelae um but uh of course it's no no parents wants their child to have long have have long covid or even have a severe reaction to covid um I think when it comes to kids we actually have to be even a bit more um, um uh, sensitive and even more um, vigilant I think because we it's really important to, um, to protect our children as much as we possibly can so I think even if there's I think there it's important that we continue to do research in this area so that we can um, really characterize this and really understand if there are particular risk groups or there any risk factors that we can um, can can look out for to try and help protect our kids even more I think um, you know, even for the rare condition, I think that's really important to do.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. and I don't remember the details, but I have seen sort of a couple of plausible biological mechanisms for why should this be like you say if if there's an inflammatory mechanism and children in general not getting as inflamed because their reactions are not it would it, it would make sense. Um, and so uh, maybe then on the vaccine waning uh, question, I guess here again, uh, we don't actually have that much data. you know the UK has some Israel has some very difficult, I think, to compare, although a lot of people have been trying to do these comparisons. Uh, I think there was a, a PhD um, study on vaccine waning as, as well. So you probably might be uh, uh, a little bit more knowledgeable about this. Do you have any thoughts on vaccine waning? And I guess people are thinking, well, you know, boosters, but that's not, um, that's not, such, an, uh, that's not such an issue um, as well. So yeah, any thoughts on vaccine waning?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to understanding the extent of waning, uh, in my view, you need real-life data, and that's as opposed to sort of laboratory data. So measuring um, antibody responses and T-cell responses in a lab um, setting can give you this first early indication of what might be happening, but I think ultimately, we need to know on a population level, we need information on infections and reinfections and that, um, and uh, And uh, yeah, sort of vaccine information in in the context of vaccines and and, um, to really understand the extent of of waning, because immune waning again, you'll have vaccine um, immunity, but you also have um, what we call the natural immunity or infection induced immunity. So both of those types of immunity um, play in; they can they can um, boost each other. I think they they're additive, Um, uh, and so I think there's there's quite a lot to unpick. Um, What we're seeing so far um, is that when we look at population data, um, and from this PHE report, we see um, not surprising results. I mean, it's showing us that you have a a greater level of vaccine waning among as you get older, so especially amongst the oldest age groups, it's sort of 80 plus. um, You see uh, um, uh, higher rates of vaccine waning over six months. Also in, in immune suppressed populations and clinically extremely vulnerable. So people who may have underlying health conditions um, have higher rates of vaccine waning. This is not surprising. This is exactly how and why we do um, annual uh, uh, boosters. Uh, well, we're doing boosters now, but I'm even thinking about flu. So we have targeted populations who just need that extra boost of immunity on an annual basis. Um, I, again, I don't. The frequency could vary, but in this, in in flu, for example, we do an annual booster that we bring people forward. The people who are most likely to need that boost of immunity, to need that additional protection, that they get offered, um, offered that, and then it just mitigates the impact in those high risk groups who are most likely to have be hospitalised, which adds to the NHS pressure and sadly die. So. Um, that's exactly how a targeted uh, booster program would work going in the future and I think the evidence we're looking at now is probably um, pointing to that. however, I think there's still the jury still out in terms of the duration of time it really takes to um, uh, to see meaningful immunity loss um, and it could be as well like we're still so early on, we've we've kind of pinned our hopes to like these these two dose vaccines. and even with Johnson Johnson, it's one dose. But there may be the need to make it a three dose regimen, for example, or adjust the dosing interval schedule. And rather than having it be um, an annual dose, maybe you actually just need three doses, and after that point, your immunity will stick around for a lot longer. Uh, these are the questions that we need to answer um, and we need more time and more data to answer that. So I think it's great that the booster program is happening now because that will help us to to, to understand these um, these factors. But I think the jury is still out in terms of what that will look like going into the future.
0: Yeah, that seems really fair. I think it's completely plausible that say you have three shots and you're your sort of what we'd call the t-cells your immune system essentially remembers that uh, yeah. as it does for some other things like chicken pox and things you can remember it for a long time what level that reaches to we 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 don't know and actually that's so a friend of mine asked who was very interested in that uh, vaccine global vaccine equity question that we raised earlier you know should they take um the third a shot as a booster and my advice was well, you can't do anything on a systems level. You know, you can't do anything about Africa, but you can do something locally about yourself. Um, if you are in one of these populations which would benefit, I, I said my recommendation is I think you should take um, the booster because it's going to help you. And you, you, you know, we can't do anything on the systems level. This is a sort of political things. Um, would you agree with that advice, or have any other thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. Your, there are two really important issues. One is that the, yeah, the global vaccine supply, and the other is the individual level, um, the offer that's happening, you know, to you when you get a text that says, "Come for a booster." By the time you get that text, the um, the, the dose is sitting in a fridge somewhere near you. So the acquisition supply is already there, and if you don't take it up, then um, it will probably go to waste. Is is the question? Um, uh, there is some, you know, some work to share leftover vaccines and things, but there is expiry dates. You know, it, it it's it's a tricky situation, and I think ultimately. Um, when you've got a vaccine sitting in a fridge, I'd rather have it in somebody's arm than just sitting there with an unknown destination. So I think if it, it, the way that the, the program is working and it is still looking at these um, priority groups, if you're falling in the priority group and you get invited, I think you should go get that vaccine, definitely. Um, even if you think you might be fine, I think every little helps with in terms of getting these vaccines and these, these boosters and the immune response for you. The work around vaccine supply that is very much more structural. That is much more um, needs government um, engagement and planning and um, cross um, international working. That absolutely needs to be at the fore hundred percent because this is you know there is a there is a limited supply. So that absolutely needs to play in um, to these discussions. But on an individual level, I think that decision. Uh, that has to be a yes, go get your vaccine.
0: Great, and then last question on the data side which would be, um, so I, I mentioned this earlier, one thing I've learned on data when I've looked at country by country comparison, particularly when I tried to look at some healthcare data, was that in reality the data were not comparable, they were, they were just too many different assumptions or how the data was collected and things, and you often see it when you see it in papers, this is kind of one line, sometimes it's a footnote saying well, We can't really make these comparisons and then we go ahead and make them uh, make them anyway because it's the best that we we've got but in actually such a high profile area i i feel this is kind of misled um well has been very misleading because you really have said apples and oranges and pears comparisons and then try to draw some conclusions and, and really uh you can't so i i don't know whether you feel this is have I overstated the case or uh, what have you ben. learned from country to country, uh, <laughs> com- comparable data and then everything which has happened there?
1: That that actually would have been a good answer for my, that very first question you asked me about. What's the most annoying thing? Oh, an annoying that thing. Yeah. could have been it, because, again, I have actually the very first um, and it was on Facebook, but the first sort of long post, I guess, or, you know, into the world that I made about, um, about coronavirus was that for people to please stop making, um, Comparisons between different countries, and I think until you're when you're working in the data, you can see how nitty gritty it is. But even a simple definition difference can make two uh, countries um, completely different in terms of comparisons. You've got population denominator issues. You've got vaccine issues. You've got healthcare issues. You've got population demographic issues. There's so many things that can. Um, that can affect the comparability that it is, I can see why people want to do it, um, but it's not a league table. You know, there's, um, you know, there's in setting people, setting countries out like a league table, I think can be very, very uh, misleading and very, very actually quite harmful. And I don't think it's a very helpful thing to do. Um, So, yeah, I I find that very um, tricky, I think, you know, to an extent, you know, it, it helps to inform people understanding what's happening in a context. And you, in some places you can see there, that there, if there is no healthcare system and there is no testing and you can see what's happening there. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I struggle. It's um, I've been banging this drum for a very long time. <laughs> Please stop making international comparisons because they're just not valid. They're just not valid.
0: Okay. That's fair. And then uh, is there (laughs) anything else on, on COVID you would like, uh, you'd like to say?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, Have we covered most of the
0: important kind of, uh, I'm not dwelling too much on the past, but kind of like you say, because things have changed about, you know, where we are now. I don't know if there's anything else you'd want to add. There might not be anything.
1: Well, I think one, I think as sort of a parting thought, I think, and it's, it's looking into the future, I think, but, what I'm what I'm a little bit worried about is when everything quote unquote goes back to normal that we will lose um, a lot of the momentum that we've gained so far and a couple areas I think um, are really important are as you say the global vaccine program I'm worried that that could fall by the wayside and get deprioritized really really quickly um, by high-income countries Um, And so I really just encourage governments to keep going with that. I think that's really, really crucial. COVAX and other vaccine sharing programs really need to keep going. Um, And that's, that's from a global health security perspective. The other thing I think that's really, really important is concentrating on inequalities and disparities in health care health outcomes. Um, and I think there has been some attention brought on that um, with COVID, but I think we need to do so much more to address these underlying um, inequalities, the um, be drivers behind um, poor access to health care, um, and keep keep pushing on with interventions and um, information programs and. Um, and uh, other sorts of um, uh, uh, programs that can help reduce disparities in, in health outcomes, um, and continue funding NHS and other health care uh, programs and social care programs that will that will allow, um, yeah, these disparities and these these gaps in health outcomes to be to be narrowed. So I yeah. think it would be a really shame to get through the whole of COVID and then forget all of the things that we've learned about that. I think yeah. we really keep, keep focusing on those.
0: I agree, I felt we did a little bit when swine flu hit, we didn't really take the lesson from that. So yeah. final question, uh, what advice might you have to, uh, maybe particularly to young people today that might cover, you know, having gone into kind of STEM and science, or it might be sort of more of an outlook about what you've learned through, uh, through life or moving or anything. Is anything you'd like to say, um, as advice and life thoughts from Megan.
1: Oh gosh, that sounds very, um, I don't know, very, um, why not say patriarch? I don't want to patronizing to people because I think everybody has their own sort of, um, their sort of journey that they need to go through. I guess, um, I think just in a career from a career perspective, I think, um, You know, we do live in a world where um, instant gratification is something that we desire, but I think um, patience um, and don't expect sort of everything to come together in terms of your career and your life aspirations overnight, I think you need to work, you need to be patient, you need to keep your head down and graft, you need to do some work that actually you believe in, that you think is important. Because if you don't think it's important, you'll be super demotivated, and nobody will be on side with you. You know, you'll be you'll find it difficult to to gain any traction with anybody else. Because then you don't when you do something you don't enjoy, it's so obvious. So I think you need to find find that that sweet spot of something that you do really enjoy um, and that you're good at. Um, and if you can't find that right away, you can try, you know, moving around and try different um, try different uh, types of um, careers and jobs and areas and topics. Um, and I think I'm a really big fan of mentorship. And actually, if you can find somebody who you look up to in a topic area, whether it's even on Twitter or you get their email address from somewhere, you see a presentation somewhere, reach out to them. And I think you can gain a lot from getting some mentorship from, from people who've been there before and, and who can probably save you quite a lot of time and energy and pain, in imparting their wisdom to you um, that they had to learn themselves. And then it can you know, help, help you to understand and help you to plan and, and, and really see what's important to you, I think, in terms of your own, your own trajectory and your own path.
0: That sounds great. So work hard and graft, do something yep. that you believe in and yep. find a mentor.
1: Excellent. That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So um, Megan, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, I learned an awful lot and thank you once again for the great uh, public service that you and your team are doing.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It was a lot of fun. Really great. enjoyed it.
0: <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.